Chapter Eleven of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: A Tiger Scare. The next scene finds me far from Baymo. I had come down the way I had gone up by steamer and rail to Mandalay, stayed one night at the Dak bungalow there as the circuit house was full, and caught the train the next day to Mamyo lying up on the Shan Plateau to the east. The journey between Mandalay and Maimyo is not long, and for the first part quite level. The line runs by the outskirts of the town, giving an opportunity for good views of the golden spire of the Arakan Pagoda, and passes Myojuang Junction, which now seemed like an old friend so often had I been through it. After this it branches off from the Amapura line, going straight to the foot of the towering hills that border the Shan Plateau, and form so conspicuous a feature from Mandalay. These rise to a height of four thousand feet above the sea level. Arrived at the foot of them, I wondered what the train was going to do, as the face of the hill was as the face of a cliff, but there was no doubt or hesitation, no creeping through some gently ascending valley, not a bit of it. We went sheer up in reversing zigzags, and, as the engine was a kind of Siamese twin, like two engines back to back, it started off gaily in the new direction at each angle, without the least difficulty. Higher and higher we rose, looking down on the sections of the line up which we had come, and the immense plain spread out before us wider and wider, flat country stretching to seeming infinity of distance. Then there came heavy rock cuttings, and we lost sight of the plain, but in compensation could soon peep over the other side of the ridge, for we were nearing the summit. Tall straw-colored grass grew abundantly near the line, and the jungle growth was thick. There were great white convolvuluses, with crimson centers climbing over everything, also smaller ones, bright mauve in color. Very common was a large free-growing shrub covered all over with velvety flowers, not unlike almond blossoms, but the color of lilac. The quickly sinking sun caught the hills at all angles, and brought out as startling patches of color the large blood-red leaves appearing amid the green foliage. Then we ran along the heights with huge tree-covered valleys rolling away on the far side. I had not started till midday, and it was dark and late when I arrived at Mamio, which is entirely a modern military hill station, sprung up in the last few years. I was met at the station by the very courteous assistant commissioner, who had come provided with passports for me and the boy, otherwise we might have had difficulty. Mamio had been so singularly free from the plague the authorities wished to keep it so, and insisted very stringently on this formality. The circuit house where I stayed, which was much more like an ordinary English house than those I had so far been in, had brick walls, and there was actually a wood fire burning brightly on the open hearth, a welcome sight, for it was quite cold. I only stayed one night at Mamio this time, going on the next day to the celebrated Goktik Gorge, which attracts sightseers from all parts of the world. As I have said, in Burma it is always wise to notify the station-master when you want to travel, 
or there may be a shortage of accommodation, and there was in this case, for when I arrived at the station about midday on the morrow, I found him metaphorically tearing his hair, as no less a party than seven besides myself were visiting Gauktik, some three hours' journey away, and this was apparently an overwhelming number. There were an American and his wife, a Scotsman and his wife, an old gentleman from Ireland, a Parsi and his wife, and all of them had to be fed at the Dak Bungalow at Gaktik, which was run by the railway. What we were to feed on, heaven alone knew. When I advised sending up some extras from the refreshment room at Mamio, the station-master jumped at this brilliant idea, and I believe a tin of biscuits actually went in the van. Having found that the two first-class carriages were quite inconveniently full, I decided that if the station-master would give me a second reserved, I should prefer it, though of course I held first-class tickets. He assented willingly, but this proceeding did not at all suit Chinnaswamy's ideas of my dignity. He could not understand my preferring to be alone in slightly worse circumstances, rather than to travel in a herd in better. In fact, I suppose the herd in itself would be an additional attraction to a native. He came and stood in the door of my carriage and sniffed and said, "'That man make bill short, missy.' I said, "'What?' "'That man make bill short.' Then I saw what he was driving at. He thought the railway company should take off something from my fare, so I laughed and sent him away. The train goes very slowly, literally little more than a foot's pace most of the way. The line runs sometimes up and sometimes down, but the downgrades did not make up for the slowness of the progress uphill. There were times when the engine puffed frantically without moving at all, and I thought we should have to get out and walk to lighten it, as one might do with a coach in the lake country. However, the surroundings were to me intensely interesting, and the delay pleasant rather than not. I saw a great deal that was strange, admiring especially the wild, high-growing jungle grasses, and a tree covered all over with blossom as bright as scarlet sealing-wax, which I learned afterwards was wild cotton. I constantly tried at the stations to get photos of the characteristic groups awaiting the train, but the difficulties were almost insuperable. To begin with, the train invariably pulled up with the platform into the sun, so unless I got out and walked to the far side I could not take a photo at all. And if I had done that, I should only have had the backs of intending passengers for my picture. Then, when the light occasionally did give me a chance, I could not attempt to photo until we stopped, because of the wild jolting, and by that time all the groups had broken up, the items were alongside the carriages, and much too near to focus. On the way back I saw a pretty sight, two tiny children preparing to carry to the train a kerosene tin of water, filled from a ditch, for the refreshment of the passengers. They consulted gravely over the business, and after a long time succeeded in filling their tin from some stagnant, slimy pool. Then the elder one said something to the little one, and he, who had hitherto been dressed only in his skin and a few bangles and chains, ran into a tumble-down hut and emerged with a wee cloth, which he wound round himself. 
Conventional requirements thus satisfied, they balanced a heavy tin on a bamboo and staggered along on their fat little legs to the train side. As they passed me, I dropped a pice for them, and the kindly natives, looking out of the third class near, called to them, Picey, Picey! I jumped out, risking the sudden departure of the train, and photographed them as they stood with their little faces wrinkled in shy perplexity. We arrived at Gauktik some time about three in the afternoon. The station being on the near side of the gorge, the train does not cross the famous bridge before arrival. Nevertheless, there is a good view looking down on it at the last incline before descending to the station. When we stopped, I, being an old traveler, recognized that there might be a shortage of accommodation and wasted no time, but set off at once up to the Dak bungalow, which was about five minutes' walk away. The Scottish couple did the same and came in first, followed by me and the gentleman from Ireland. The event justified the proceeding, for there were two blocks, one with three first-class sets of rooms and one with three second-class sets. By the time Chenna had procured coolies and brought up the baggage, I was installed in one of the first-class sets and my companions in the other two. There remained the Americans who, I heard afterwards, had been considerably annoyed all the way up that things were not done precisely as they were in America, and they, with the Parsi couple, had to settle in the second-class block. But they did not give in without a struggle. Presently the man went back to the station and sent up the station masker, a little babu, who said to me, "'That gentleman, he say you travel second-class.' You go second-class accommodation. He come here. I called for the tickets, which had not been collected, and presented them to him. His apologies were abounding. I remained in the first-class room. It is a long way down to the great cave at the foot of the gorge, and it is best to start at once, or darkness sets in, before it can be comfortably reached. Not knowing this, I had tea, and wrote a letter first before making the descent, and when I came out I found that the rest of the party had dispersed. The babu station-master, kicking his heels at a loss for a job, was the only person to be seen. When he volunteered to act as guide I assented, as I had not the smallest idea what to see or how to see it. The Parsi couple suddenly appeared and joined in, and the boy asked leave to come, so this strangely assorted procession started. The view from the platform where the bungalow stood was superb. The valley rolled away from our feet, thickly covered with jungle growth, sloping downward at an angle of about forty-five degrees. It was spanned at a height of about four hundred feet by a fairy-like trestle bridge, half a mile in length, and one of the wonders of the world. This, in turn, rested on the roof of a natural cave in the rock below, and, as the cave itself was four hundred feet in height, the whole height of the bridge, from the river dashing through the valley, was eight hundred feet. The further side of the valley rose high above the bridge, an escarpment of magnificent cliffs stained red-gold with the iron that was in them. The railway line, on reaching the foot of them, slowly crawled up along a shelf or terrace, trending away to the left, and by way of this shelf it crept on until it reached the shoulder of the great mass of rock and turned it to continue its tortuous journey by the same method on the far side. 
On each side of the bridge itself there is a parapet not a foot high, and this is all between the pedestrian who crosses it on foot and the stupendous drop below. At intervals, on one side, are projecting brackets or platforms to be used for the introduction of a second line of rail if it should be required. Standing on these, the sensation is rather like being swung between heaven and earth. Indeed, it takes a fairly strong head to cross the bridge at all, as it is at present but a little more than a width of single line of rail. Anyone is allowed to walk freely across, and I did not hear of any accidents. Leaving the actual traversing of the bridge until the morrow, we descended into the gorge to explore the cave. Thinking that the babu was a little more exuberant in his demeanor than was quite becoming, I sent him on ahead and let the Parsees follow to form a buffer. The poor little woman was dressed in the long trailing silk skirts of her native costume, and was further much embarrassed by a pair of new European shoes, which made her stumble over every pebble, so, as the descent was very steep, she did not progress very fast. When we had passed a little way down, we could stand beneath the bridge and look up at it, gaining in that way a much better idea of its enormous proportions than from above. It was being painted bright scarlet by Chinamen who hung on, swinging in mid-air, looking like tiny monkeys. The remaining part of the way down to the cave after this was much steeper. It followed a little winding paths through a thick jungle from which strange miasmic smell arose. The path zigzagged round and round and grew darker every minute. Quite suddenly the babu stopped and said impressively, Tiger smell. I thought he was probably tired of escorting us and had invented an excuse to go back, so I said to the boy, Is he making a humbug, or is it true? True, missy, Chenna answered, his face growing a sickly color. I smell him, too. Him smell like inside of a Rangoon railway carriage. Well could I imagine that smell. The Parsees waited no longer, but vanished like smoke, European shoes and all, and after hesitating one second, the station-master went after them. I was still skeptical about that tiger, and certainly no ordinary tiger would have attacked us, so long as the light lasted. But then we were only halfway down, and if I went on, it would mean coming up in the dark. So, after reluctantly peering around the next corner and seeing the same jungly path running down out of sight, I slowly retreated. Chinnaswamy had not run. I will do him that justice, but his face was a picture of terror. As I walked back, I said to him, If I had gone on down to that cave boy, would you have come with me? He has moral courage, if not the other sort, for he answered in a very small voice, No, missy. Then, evidently thinking I was angry, he continued, in an explanatory way, If missy want to go cave, missy get Burman man. He live in jungle. He not afraid. He got great big da. If tiger come, he slice him. But as I still continued unrelenting, he ceased. But as we got nearer and nearer to the upper levels, his spirits rose. He hacked at the tall growing plants with the stick he had seized, and said suddenly, with great chuckle, Them natives, how they run! 
At this I burst out laughing, and he knew he was forgiven. Of course no one ever saw that tyke. Even if he were not very brave, Chinna was a good boy. The dinner the Derwan at the Dak Bungalow gave us that night was very meagre, but I found that, though the others had horrid native-made bread, mine was toasted, my butter had been washed, and I had a drop of fresh milk, not condensed, and none of these things had I told the boy to get. They were due to his own forethought. However, he had made one mistake, for he had left my towels at Mamio, and the towels of any sort were not to be had here for love or money. We gravely debated the question of the rival merits of my print dressing-gown and my single sheet to serve the purpose, and decided on the former. The following morning the valley was filled to the brim with mist, making it into a level plain. I hoped it would clear off before the train came in, as I had requisitioned a trolley to be sent down from the next station, so that I could run across the viaduct before we left. In the meantime I went down to the station to send off some telegrams. The babu, like all his tribe, was restless, and it was necessary to stand over him to ensure anything being done. I was thus engaged reading out to him each word of the wire I wanted to send, in a room about eight feet by four, when a hen fluttered in, flung herself on the table, and made the appalling noise hens generally do when they have laid an egg. I chivied her out, but back she came. I sent her flying once more, but she dodged past me and landed upon a pile of official papers on a shelf, where she crouched down and defied me. The babu at this looked up at me most piteously, and said with pathos, She won't lay egg very much. Let her. The telegrams were left to their fate. The trolley duly came, as the last wreaths of mist were lifting, and a message was sent up to me, telling me I could take two other persons with me. Needless to say, it was not the couple from America I chose as my companions. The gorge scene and the gradual uprising of the morning mist was even more beautiful than I had seen in the evening. It would have required a turner to do it justice. The slow unveiling of the cliffs, revealing each moment long sword gleams of iron-tinged rock, was fascinating. I and the stranger lady sat in front beside the brakeman, and we went off down the incline at a tremendous speed. There was nothing in front. It was like a race on a glorious motor-car. We simply spun over the long trestles, and the great crags seemed to race to meet us, while the clouds rolled up from the more distant blue hills at the end of the valley. Never have I done anything more exhilarating. The Scotch lady grabbed my arm in the midst of it all, and said, with the utmost impressiveness, How many yards of silk did you get for those petticoats at Mandalay, if I may ask? I answered with equal fervor, Five, do you think it was enough? Verily there are some people to whom shop-windows form the grandest scenery of God's earth. On the far side we ran up with diminishing speed among the shelf of rock, through several tunnels, until the coolies began to shove, and we gained the level. Then the trolley was reversed, and we spun back across the bridge to the station, where the train soon followed us in. It is sad to have to leave Gauctique Gorge without seeing the mysterious cave, but I assuaged regret 
my plans for the future. I would come back from Mamio the following week, when the moon would be full. I thought this might be feasible, as a lady who had come over in the same steamer with me from England lived at Mamio. I was sure she had not seen the gorge, and with her help we might get up a party, and take our own provisions, a necessary precaution, as the fare provided by the railway had been scanty in the extreme, and the price charged was nine rupees a day. However, like many other castles in the air, this one was not realized, for when I returned to Mamio, I found it was a festival week, with plays and entertainments going on every day and no one wanted to come to Goktik, so I had to add the cave to the collection in my Museum of Regrets. End of chapter 11